Liberty Enlightening the World, better known as the Statue of Liberty, was given to the United States by France in 1886. It was shipped over here in 214 crates, and it weighed 225 tons. The Statue of Liberty, the famed robed female figure, represents Libertas, the Roman goddess of freedom. Now, her frame and her infrastructure are made of iron, but her exterior is made of copper. Now, over time, that copper has turned green due to oxidation, and it's given her that iconic green coating, that that patina that we know so well. Lady Liberty is over 300 feet tall, and she has a 35-foot waistline. She wears a size, listen to this, she wears a size 879 shoe. Shaq doesn't come close to that. Visitors, to get to the top, have to climb 354 stairs to reach the statue's crown. When it was built in 1886, it cost over $500,000 to build, which today would be over $10 million. Pretty awesome gift, right? Each year, nearly 5 million people ride the ferry to Liberty Island to see the Statue of Liberty. And her right hand is the torch that lights the way to freedom, and her left hand is a tablet with the inscription, July 4th, 1776, marking the date of the American Declaration of Independence. And on, her, on the base where she stands, she stands among broken shackles and chains with her right foot raised, depicting her movement forward away from oppression and towards freedom. Now, for all of her architectural glory, for all of the, the engineering that's gone behind it, for all of the impressive stats about her, the statue itself is not the point, is it? Lady Liberty is a symbol, a promise of something greater, a promise of hope and freedom and liberty. In 1886, President Grover Cleveland, when he accepted the Statue of Liberty on behalf of the United States, said this, We will not forget that liberty has made her home here, nor shall her chosen altar be neglected. What was he saying? He was saying that though the statue is great, it points to something greater. It's meant to remind us of the goodness and the beauty of freedom. That freedom isn't free, that it's costly, and it must be defended and maintained. He was saying that we must make sure that America remains the land of the free and a refuge for those looking for freedom. Today, the Statue of Liberty is an icon of freedom all around the world, not just for the U.S. It stirs a desire for freedom and people all around the world. The statue is great, but it points to something even greater. Now today, we come to the end of our sermon series in the book of Jonah and God's relentless pursuit. Last week, we finished in Jonah 4, the story of Jonah, but there's actually more to be said. In the Gospels, Jesus said that all of the Old Testament, the law, the writings, the prophets, which was just another way to say all of it, all of it points to him. Look with me in Luke 24, verse 44. And then Jesus said to them, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me and the law of the Moses and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What he was saying is that everything that was written in the Old Testament was actually pointing to and anticipating me. And here we are in Matthew chapter 12. We just read it. Jesus tells us that the temple pointed to something greater. He also said that Jonah pointed to something greater and that Solomon himself pointed to something greater. Just like the Statue of Liberty is great and it's good for what it is, but it points to something greater. Jesus was saying the temple, Jonah, Solomon, all of them point to something greater and they point to the one who is greater, Jesus Christ, the truer and greater prophet, priest, and king. And as our great prophet, priest, and king, Jesus provides the cure for all of our infirmities. He is the solution to all of our problems. So we're going to spend our time today looking at how it is that Jesus is greater than the temple, how he's greater than Jonah, and how he's greater than Solomon. The temple representing the the priesthood, and Jonah representing the prophets, and Solomon representing the kings. So let's start in verse 1 to see how Jesus is, in fact, the greater priest. So we looked at this earlier, but let's read it again. Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So let's stop there for a second. So Jesus and his disciples are, are walking on the Sabbath, and they're, they're coming through a grain field. And you can almost see the, the Pharisees who are just kind of like sneaking around, trying to see what Jesus is doing, always looking for, for, for something that they can grab a hold of to, to discredit Jesus. And as the disciples are walking through, they begin to pluck the heads of grain and to eat them. Now, before you think the disciples are stealing from someone else's crop, the Old Testament law actually um, allowed for people to snack on neighbors' grain fields. Look with me at Deuteronomy 23 and verse 25. He says, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So what it's getting at is there's a difference between taking a couple grain heads to snack on and going out there and making a harvest, right? If you go and harvest it, you're stealing, but if you're just taking a quick snack as you walk through, no big deal. Teaching a, 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 to be generous, to, to say, hey, a couple of grain heads when you're hungry is fine. But the Pharisees see it, and they accuse them not of stealing, but of breaking the Sabbath law. See, for the Pharisees, it wasn't that they were picking grain from a neighbor's field, but that they were doing it on the Sabbath. Now, if you know um, Old Testament, the Sabbath was a day set aside for worship, a day set aside for rest, recreation, and it was a break from the endless drive of work. It was a day to trust in the Lord's provision and enjoy the life that God has given you. Now think about it. If you are a farmer, there's never a day off. There's never a day that there's not something to do. And so for them, it was a matter of trusting the Lord's protection and provision to say, on this day, you're not going to do any work. You're going to trust that you're going to have plenty to eat. You're going to trust that that the work for today can be done tomorrow. This is a day to focus on me. It wasn't about uh, legalism and doing things. It was literally a day to recenter, to refocus and say, I am the Lord's people. We are his people and he will 
take care of us. But see, the Pharisees had taken God's good law and they added a long list of additions and regulations, things that weren't stated in God's word. See, the Jewish law, if you were to, to, to add them all up, go through the books of Moses and everything else, there would be 613 codes and laws that helped govern their civil life as well as their life of worship to the Lord. But the Pharisees, on top of those 613 laws, had added all sorts of extra laws to make them more restrictive than they were intended to be. See, this is the heart of legalism that says we need to create formulas, set answers, instead of taking God's principles and taking the heart behind the law and learning how to walk faithfully and humbly with him, we want to add all kinds of restrictions in order to know exactly what we're supposed to do. And in those extra restrictions, they made it very difficult to live. See, boundaries are good things, but they become bad things, evil things, when they become an opportunity to heap unnecessary shame and guilt on people. And that's what was going on. See, they took these good laws of God and they they turned them into weapons of destruction instead of gifts of protection. See, the disciples aren't breaking the law of God. It wasn't a crime to walk. It wasn't a crime to eat. That wasn't work. But according to the, to the Pharisees' extra laws, you couldn't even do that. So they're not breaking the law of God. They're breaking the Pharisees' regulations. So Jesus responds to their accusation. Look with me at verse 3. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. And then he says, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? So what Jesus does here is he gives them two examples. The first is a story in the life and the time of David who entered into the tabernacle and ate the consecrated bread. Now, the tabernacle was this mobile temple until, that served as the, the house of worship until the permanent temple was built in Jerusalem. And when you would go inside the temple, there'd be this, this room called the holy place. And inside it, there was a table with this bread of presence. And every Sabbath, the priest would replace the bread with freshly made bread. There'd be 12 loaves on this table. Each loaf symbolized and represented one of the tribes of Israel. And it was common practice, they were actually encouraged the priests to eat on this bread throughout the week. And as they were doing so, they were kind of representing the 12 tribes of Israel having this covenant meal with God. It's amazing how even in in, in the setup, God has said, look, you're going to be working for me. You're going to get hungry. Let's make sure there's a table uh, with bread on it to fill your physical needs. But also remember, it's you're in this house of worship and it's like you're having a meal with me. Think about the intimacy there. God is just wanting to have a meal with his people. But this was just for the priests. So now David comes to the tabernacle, and you can read about that story in the Old Testament. He's he's hungry. He's on the move. And his men with him were hungry, and they asked the priests, do you have anything for us to eat? Now, at that time, the priest didn't have any other food, common bread, regular stuff in the pantry or in the fridge. All they had to give them was this consecrated bread of presence that only the priests were supposed to eat. But they look at these men, that they were hungry, that they were famished, that they needed something to eat, and the priests implicitly understood 
that human need takes priority over ritual custom. See, they were, they were using their heads. They were using their hearts. They were looking at the, the letter of the law, but also saying there, there's a spirit of the law there as well. These men are hungry. All we have to give them is this consecrated bread. What would be the greater sin? To send them away hungry or to give them this consecrated bread? Jesus is saying, your regulations are more restrictive than necessary. Human need takes priority. And then Jesus gave them a second example, right? He said the, 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 the priests on the Sabbath day are actually, if you want to think about it this way, profaning the Sabbath because it's on the Sabbath day that they do twice as much work, right? It's like pastors on the Sabbath day are doing a lot of extra work, right? For the good of the people. On the Sabbath, offerings and sacrifices were doubled, which means for them, it really wasn't a day of rest, right? They did more work on the Sabbath than they did on the weekday. In a sense, they broke the Sabbath rules, but the reality was that the temple worship of God took priority over the regulations about the Sabbath. What God is saying is, look, I've given you these these rules and these principles, but you got to think. You got to be willing to apply them. The idea here is that rules require discernment and must take into account the situation as we apply them. Ultimately, Jesus was saying, as you strive for the letter of the law, you're missing the spirit of the law. You've totally missed it. Now Jesus finishes the conversation with them. Verse six, he says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What is he saying? Jesus is saying, you've misunderstood the intention and the purpose of the law. But good news for you, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, and I am here, and I will bring clarity to the law. Because something greater than the temple is here, namely me. I have the authority. I have the perspective to clarify the law for you. And here's what you've missed, Pharisees, that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. It's not merely the the act of sacrifice that brings a pleasure to God, but it's the heart behind it. You see, God looks at the heart more than he looks at the precision of ritualistic and legalistic rule following. He's saying you can follow all of the rules to the perfect letter, but if your heart is not into it, if your heart is not behind it, it doesn't matter. Something greater than the temple is here. Now, when he said that, you have to realize the temple is not some building that they think looks really cool. The temple is the epicenter of God's presence among God's people. The temple is a really big deal. And so when Jesus said, listen, there's something greater than the temple here, that would have been shocking to them. They would have had no frame of reference. No, no, no. You don't understand. Without the temple, we can't even worship God. So how can there be something greater than the temple? Now, it's not fully explained yet at this point, but what we know is that Jesus is greater than the temple because he is fully God dwelling among us in flesh. See, the point of the temple was to bring God's presence to dwell among his people. But in Jesus, 
God's presence is fully there with them. He's saying right now, guys, you're standing face to face with the presence of God. Jesus is greater than the temple because he is fully God dwelling among us in flesh. And as you read through the New Testament, you find out that Jesus is going to build a new temple, the temple of his body, the church, to be the people of his presence. Look with me at the book of Ephesians chapter 2. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in Jesus, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What Paul is saying is that the new temple is built with Jesus himself as the cornerstone. He's the first stone. He's the, 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 the cornerstone would be this reference stone that determines the position of all other stones. And the foundation is being built on the ministry of the apostles and the prophets. And all of us today, believers in Jesus, are living stones who make up the structure of the temple. So now this new temple that's no longer bound by geography, by time, by race, and by culture, the church is this new temple that Jesus builds as the people of God who are filled with the presence of God for the purposes of God in the world. You see, the temple was good, but it pointed to something greater, a new temple built with living stones. The people of God, not only as the living, uh, the people of God with not only the living stone, but Jesus as our truer and greater high priest. So Jesus says there's something greater than the temple coming, but think about it. The temple also had priests, and what he's saying now is there's even something better than the, than the priest coming. The temple, the priest, the whole sacrificial system was set up to solve humanity's fundamental problem. Because of our sin, we have two fundamental problems. So everyone in this room right now, no matter who you are, I don't even have to know your name. I know because you're human, you've got two problems that I have as well. The first problem is this. We have not lived the life that we should have lived. We have not lived and fully obeyed God's law. No one in this room has lived a life of moral perfection. And the reality is we haven't even come close. It's not like we've gotten so close and there's just a couple minor imperfections. The reality is, is all of us have fallen short of the glory and holiness of God. That's our first problem. Our second problem is this. Our life of sin, because of living that moral life of imperfection, has incurred guilt and punishment, which means we deserve punishment and guilt. Because of the life that we lived, we're guilty. it's a cause and effect. Because we've sinned, we now have guilt. And because of that, our sin separates us from God, who is life. See, if God is life, to be separated from him is a really big problem, right? If you want life, you need to be connected to life. But sin separates us from the God of life, and therefore we don't have access to his life. Because of our sin, We are guilty and deserving of God's just judgment. And the Bible says that the ultimate and final punishment for sin is death. 
So this whole sacrificial system that was created served as a temporary solution. See, sacrifices would would be this way that uh, God's wrath could be appeased for the moment. And so they would come and they would bring a slaughtered animal. And it took the place of the person bringing the sacrifice. So each person bringing it would know, I deserve death. But this animal is going to die in my place, right? Death has to happen to pay for this sin. Blood has to be spilled. So it's either my blood or the blood of this animal. And God in his grace provided a substitutionary atonement for that to happen, right? The lamb received the punishment of death instead of me. Joel Beakey says it really well. We'll have the words on the screen. Salvation is only in Jesus Christ because there are two conditions that no matter how hard we try, we can never meet. Yet they must be done if we are to be saved. The first is to satisfy the justice of God through obedience to the law. The second is to pay the price of our sins. We cannot do either, but Christ did both perfectly. Now let's unpack this a little bit. In Romans 5.19, Paul says this, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus is the one who lived the life of obedience that we have failed to live. Jesus did that. He lived the life of obedience that we have failed to live. That's what Paul was saying. The one man's disobedience, that's Adam, many were made sinners. But by the one man's obedience, that's Christ, many will be made righteous. Jesus lived the life of obedience that we have failed to live. Now look with me at Romans 5.10. Paul says this, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Here's what Jesus is saying, or here's what Paul's saying about Jesus. Jesus gave his life in our place as the Lamb of God, to be the payment price for sin. And he did that while we were still enemies, while we were still separated from God, unreconciled to God, the death of his son became this reconciling, substitutionary atonement for us. He has now become the lamb who was slain to take the punishment we deserved so that we could be saved by his life. He gave his life to spare us from death. Now think about it. In the Old Testament, the, the, the priests would, would take this sacrifice, not themselves, this, this animal, and sacrifice it to God. But Jesus is the great high priest who offers himself as the perfect sacrifice once and for all. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, 12, and 14. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You can imagine these priests, right, over and over, seeing the same people over and over again, offering yet another sacrifice. Look at verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Jesus is both the sacrifice once for all and the great high priest who offers the only sacrifice that can take away our sins and reconcile us to God. 
And because he didn't stay dead, but yet rose again, he isn't a dead high priest, but he is alive and well. And he remains our high priest, who remains our constant intercessor and advocate. Jesus right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father, continues to be our great high priest who prays for us, who advocates for us. Right now, if you're a believer in Christ, your access and enjoyment of God is secure because Jesus lives and we are united to Jesus as his beloved people. For all those reasons, Jesus could say, Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the priesthood is here. And it's me. I am. Jesus is the truer and greater temple, and he's the truer and greater high priest. Now let's jump down to verse 38, and we'll see how Jesus is the greater prophet. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Okay, so this is the same group that was accusing him earlier. Now they're saying, hey, give us a sign. So what are they asking for? See, a sign would have been something that would have authenticated Jesus's message and ministry, something that to them would validate what he's saying so that they could know that he is who he said he was. The problem with that at this point in Jesus's ministry is that he's performed a number of signs. And very often, these, the same group of people were witnesses to it. So instead of receiving those signs when they came as validation of his ministry, they often accused him of breaking God's law or that his power came from the devil and not from God. In fact, just a few verses earlier, this same group saw Jesus heal a man with a withered and deformed hand. And instead of praising God for this healing among them, instead of seeing like, man, who must Jesus actually be if he can heal this man's hand? Instead, they said, yeah, but technically, he did do it on the Sabbath. So, I mean, Messiah, maybe if it was on Monday, but on Sunday, that's breaking the Sabbath. And we all know healing is a type of work and work's not allowed on the Sabbath. So, he's broken God's law and therefore, he can't be God's son. See, they were simply unwilling to see what was happening right in front of their eyes. They were unwilling to accept the signs that had already been given to them. So Jesus isn't going to give them another one. They've already settled it in their heart not to believe. So how does he answer them? Verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. See, Jesus tells them, Their problem is not a need for a sign, but you need a new heart. You're not genuinely looking for evidence to believe in me. You're looking for things to discredit me. You want me to do one more thing so that you can try to find some some fracture, some hairline problem with it. In his commentary on Matthew's gospel, Michael Green writes this. Their heart, Jesus said, was adulterous. But rather than admit it, they pretended that they did not have enough evidence on which to make a decision. Underneath intellectual doubt, there is sometimes, but not always, a heart that does not want to know the answer. We've said this before, but it's worth repeating. There is a difference categorically between faith-seeking understanding and unbelief-seeking validation. Okay, Jesus is not against your genuine doubts and questions. 
But see, the Pharisees don't have genuine doubts and questions. They have a settled opposition and cynicism against them. For the Pharisees, they've already determined their answer. They're not genuinely open to doubting their doubts or even challenging their skepticism. In their settled opposition to Jesus, they've already made up their minds. And Jesus knows their hearts and is not going to play their game. Look what he says on in verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says, you want a sign? You will get the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, I will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah was cast into the depths of the sea for his own sins in order to spare the life of the sailors. And we looked at that in chapter one a few weeks ago. Jonah was cast into the depths of the sea of, uh, 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 in order to spare the life of the sailors. Jesus is saying, I will be cast into the depth of the sea of God's wrath, not for my sins, but for yours, to save sinners like you and me. Jonah spent three days and three nights in the tomb of a great fish that spared his life. Jesus now is going to spend three days and three nights in the tomb of his earth, and he will give up his life. Jonah came near to death, even tasted it. But Jesus was crushed under the weight of our sin and punishment, and he experienced the fullness of death. He didn't merely taste it. He experienced all of it. So what Jesus is telling them, If you want to know if I am the real deal, look and see what happens when I'm crucified and buried. I will not give you a sign today, but there is coming a sign when you will be able to authenticate and validate who I am. And when that happens, when you see me go into the ground, pay attention, stick around, and look at what happens next. Then he goes on to say, verse 41, the men of Nineveh, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You remember in Jonah, when he came and he preached a message of repentance, the people of Nineveh, the most unlikely of converts, repented. They turned away from their evil. And Jesus says that generation is going to rise up and look down on this generation. See, like Jonah, Jesus is preaching a message of repentance. And like Nineveh, they they repented. But here, Jesus is preaching the same thing, and yet they aren't repenting. If you remember, Jonah's preaching was less than ideal. It was half-hearted at best. It lacked love for his people. But yet God, in his grace, sent them a prophet to instruct them and correct them and let them know about their sin. He didn't leave them in their ignorance and blindness. And that's what God does is he gives us his word. It's it's a message of grace so that we would not live in ignorance and blindness. And in the fullness of time, God gave us the last prophet, the final prophet, the truer and greater prophet, Jesus Christ. Look what the writer of Hebrews says. Long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is saying, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus told the Pharisees, if the Ninevites repented with a lesser prophet, 
a half-hearted prophet, how much more should you be repenting when you have the greater prophet standing here in front of you right now? Do you see the correlation? He said they had a half-hearted prophet and they repented and they weren't even the people of God. You are the people of God and the greatest prophet who will ever live is here now. What happens when you reject him? Jesus says, I am the prophet who so loves his people that I am willing to die for you. Jesus is saying, my power will be displayed through my weakness. And out of my death, those who repent will receive life. And because Jesus was willing, not just to preach a message of repentance, but to die in the place of those who need to repent, Jesus is the greater prophet. He's the greater priest. He's the greater temple. He's the greater David. He's also the greater prophet. Now let's look at verse 42 to see how he is, in fact, the greater king. Verse 42, Jesus is still speaking. He says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So this is the end of Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees. And he reminds them, he says, hey, Pharisees, you're students of the word of God. You remember that story in 1 Kings chapter 10? When the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, came to visit Solomon, the great king of Israel. She had heard from her far off country of his wisdom and his prosperity, and she had to see it for herself. And when she had listened to his wisdom and came and saw of his prosperity, the Bible says that she lost her breath. Look with me, 1 Kings 10. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She saw the opulence and the power and the majesty of Solomon. And she said, it's more than I could even imagine. Then she said in verse 6, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, not even the half was told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpasses the report that I heard. How happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Thinking about that passage, just how great and opulent and wise Solomon was. And he really was one of the greatest kings in all of Israel's history. Now Jesus says, but guess what? Something greater than Solomon is here. Now, I give you all that background so that you can enter into the minds of those who would have been hearing Jesus say that. They're saying, hey, look at me. Like, I'm a, I'm a middle-class carpenter. I don't come from a family of background. In fact, my family background has a lot of questions behind it. People wondering how did Mary get pregnant, all that kind of stuff. And he's saying something greater than Solomon is here. And on the surface, you're looking at him like, what do you mean something greater than Solomon is here? You're middle class, just like the rest of it. You have no kingdom. You have no throne. You have no opulence. How can you say that you're greater than Solomon? 
for all his wisdom, for all his power, for all his prosperity, Jesus is saying something greater than Solomon is here. What he's saying is I am the king that all other kings have been pointing to. I am the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it may not look like it on the surface, but look how the apostle Paul tells his protege, Timothy. Chapter six, he says, Jesus is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, and to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Christ in his first coming was the king of kings and Lord of lords, but it was masked. It was veiled. You couldn't, you couldn't see it then. But when Jesus comes again, there will be nothing left to chance. We will see him as he truly is, that Jesus is sovereign, that he's totally in control, and that there is no higher king than him. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the king? Well, first and foremost, it means right now his throne is not vacant. It is occupied by Christ the king. He is right now, Jesus, reigning and ruling at the right hand of God the Father. Regardless of our recognition of him, regardless of our world's submission to him, family, hear me, Christ is king. Not some future day from now. Right now, Jesus is the king. And listen to me. We don't make him king. He is the king. We don't make him sovereign. He is sovereign. There is not a part of his creation that he does not look at and say, mine. He is the sovereign Lord over all creation. And the good news for us is he's not an oppressive king. He's a redemptive king, which means he is right now restoring order and working out his plan to reclaim creation so that his grace and glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. There is nothing happening right now that makes him nervous. There's nothing going on right now that he's going, well, how am I going to work that out? Absolutely nothing. Everything is working out according to his plan. Christ is king, and he redeems us so that we experience the blessings of his kingdom. Jeremy Treat, who's written much on Christ as king, is helpful here. He says this, in Christ, we are saved from death and for life. We are saved from shame and for glory. We are saved from slavery and for freedom. We are saved from sin and for following our Savior. We are saved from the kingdom of darkness and for the kingdom of life. So what does it mean that Jesus is king? It means that he is the king who fights for us and defeats death on our behalf. He is the king whose glory will cover over your shame. He is the king who will deliver you out of your slavery. He is the king who gives us someone better to follow than our own selfish desires and fleeting pleasures. He is the king who provides all that we need. Christ as our king should be a warm blanket for believers on a cold night. Listen to how John Calvin said it. He said, we may patiently pass through this life with its misery, cold, contempt, reproaches, and other troubles, content with this one thing. 
So he's saying, if you're looking at your life and it's not going the way that you look at it, this one thing should give you comfort, that our king will never leave us destitute, but will provide for our needs until our warfare ended. We are called to triumph. It is not up for grabs. Our triumph is inevitable. It is just a matter of time, and the time is in his hands. No matter what today or tomorrow brings, our king will not leave us destitute. He will provide for our every need, and we will reign with him. Friend, if you are a child of God, Christ is your great prophet, priest, and king. In our ignorance and blindness, Christ is the true prophet who tells us the truth about our sin and the one who not only teaches us about righteousness, but also gives us his righteousness. In the guilt of our sin, Christ is the true priest who offers himself as the sacrifice that pays for our sins and reconciles us to God. And in the treason of our rebellion, because that's really what our sin is, it's rebellion against a sovereign Lord. Christ is the true king who offers pardon and gives us a place to live and reign for him, with him. For all of our problems, for all of our iniquities, for all of our infirmities, Christ is the cure. But like all cures, we must accept it and receive it in order for the cure to be of benefit to us, right? We have to receive the pardon that he extends to us or else it's of no use to us. No one knew this better than George Wilson. Back in 1829, George Wilson and an accomplice received the death penalty for murder and robbing mail trains. Now, the the accomplice quickly went to the gallows and was executed for his crimes. But George Wilson had influential friends in Washington. And those influential friends had the ear of the president, and they begged President Andrew Jackson for leniency on behalf of their friend. And in 1830, President Jackson, uh, President Jackson pardoned Wilson for his capital crimes, which meant he would still have to uh, pay out his, his uh, sentence for the other crimes committed, but at least it meant his life would be spared, unlike his accomplish, accomplice. But when the pardon was presented to Wilson, he refused it. And at first they were thought, no, 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 I don't think you understand If you refuse this, you're going to die. And Wilson said, no, I don't want it. I don't want the pardon. And there was kind of like this legal debate, like, well, can he really reject a pardon? Isn't it an executed order of the president? And so eventually, uh, after it went around and about in some appellate courts, it came before the Supreme Court. And here's how they ruled. They ruled that the pardon had to be received in order for it to go into effect. There was no way legally to make George Wilson accept it. So here's how the court ruled. A pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential. And delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered. And if it is rejected, we have discovered no power in this court to force it upon him. I know that's a lot of legal mumbo jumbo. Let me translate it. You have to receive the pardon in order to receive the benefits of the pardon. And the court said, we cannot force that upon you. 
It's like a piece of property. You have to receive it. And soon after, Wilson was executed for his crimes. Now, I tell you that story to highlight the simple reality that all the benefits and blessings of Christ as your prophet, priest, and king must be accepted and received in order for those benefits to go into effect. And the Bible says that in order to receive the benefits of Christ of our, as our prophet, priest, and king, we have to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead in order to be cured and pardoned and saved. See, the benefits of Christ as prophet, priest, and king are extended to you now, but you have to receive them. If you don't receive them, then the delivery of them is not complete. And I find no way in this church to make you do it. You have to receive them. You can do that today as we respond to the Lord in song. And if you'd like to talk with a pastor about what it looks like to confess with your mouth and to believe in your heart, whatever it is, whatever questions you have, don't leave here today without them answered. We would love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you about what it looks like to receive Christ as your prophet, priest, and king. Let's pray.